0: Welcome to the Neck Now Podcast, presented by the New England Center for Children. Today's episode features a lab discussion with Jason Bure, NACC's clinical director, as well as recurring guests Dave Palmer and John Pinkston. Dave, John, and Jason are all Western New England University faculty. Jason, Dave, John, and Western New England University graduate students discuss the fundamental nature of response classes. Dave also proposes a new perspective with reference to some of Skinner's early unpublished writing. Thank you to Dave and John for coming on. the
1: Beret Lab special topics um, discussion. Today we've got um, Dave Palmer with us. So Professor Emeritus at Smith College instructor in the Western New England program teaching the uh, advanced verbal behavior course. Dave, welcome. Thanks again. Dave's gonna take um, point on uh, some of, uh, describing some of the, his thoughts on response classes, what they are and how we might think about them a little bit differently. Um, I see. I see. John's joined us. John's here from his office. Look at you working on a Saturday. Nice job, John Pinkston, professor at uh, Western New England. John, how's it going?
0: Great to be here.
1: Look at all your books. Look at that. That must mean you're smart. <laughs> many books in pe- stacks. Of-
0: I have these books because I'm trying to become smart. So.
1: <laughs> I, I think that's directly indicative of how smart you are. You'll notice that my behind me is nothing. It's like a vacuum, to total, totally indicative of ignorance.
0: So, or, or my inability to organize things because they're just sort of, you know. Yeah.
1: Are those are those JABS? Is that what it is? There looks like there's a, a
0: journal. Um, yeah, much of those. Bunch of those are JABS and the behavior analyst. Uh, back when I used to run it, did things actually on paper and uh then there's some textbooks and stats books and all kinds of all kinds of books
1: old school paper Hmm. all right dave do you want to do you want to launch us into this i think um you know some of the some of the background is good and i always enjoy hearing you tell us about how you were digging through skinner's attic looking for letters or whatever so do you want to you want to go ahead
2: yes okay the The backstory is that I, uh, I am temporarily a member of the b f. Skinner Foundation Board of directors. Uh, you know it's a term that runs in fact my my term runs out in a, in a month um, but um one of the pleasures of of being on the board or or actually not not so much being on the board but just hanging around Cambridge where these things are is that I get to snoop through. Uh, Unpublished documents of Skinner's, Uh, and um, to cut to the chase, I I came across a letter that Skinner wrote to Fred Keller in 1931, when Skinner was only 27 years old, probably younger than 90% of the people on this, uh, you know, in this in this group. Um, And uh, he David, so that's so that's
1: seven years before Behavior of Organisms, right? Exactly. Yep. four years before generic nature of the concept of stimulus response. He's in grad school at this time.
2: Is that right? Well, he, he had just, um, just published his dissertation, I believe. Um, yep. I'm not precisely sure what, what when he graduated, but he graduated a, a, about this time. So he's, he's essentially a, um, a, a professor, I mean, a, a, a PhD at this point. Right. Um, the, uh, the letter was interesting um, because of um, it uh, because it was to his buddy, his 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 good old pal Fred Keller, who at the time was uh, just starting a assistant professor job at Colgate University. And the 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 letters I think of from one buddy to another are you know filled with you know dirty jokes and and anecdotes about barfing and so on, but. But Skinner's letter is is four tightly packed pages, uh, full of diagrams and cumulative records and and all sorts of um, you know uh, bullet heads and arrows and so on pointing to this and that diagrams, um, and the, the the content is is um, just wonderful grist for a behaviorist mill. Mm. Um, specifically, he he's um, he first comes up with this scheme in this in this letter. He first unleashes on the world the notion that reinforcement happens all at once. That is, a single trial is sufficient to condition behavior. Now, this was consistent with his laboratory findings. That is, uh, by by pretty much eliminating everything else that a rat might want to do in a Skinner box, and you know depriving the rat and habituating it to the smells and sights of the chamber and um feeder training until the rat um so to speak n- knew what the sound of the feeder meant and so on um a single trial was enough to launch behavior in some strength um yeah and, there is, i remember that the there was a
1: comment in there where he said something like the the curve shows learning but not conditioning that
2: yes the, exactly conditioning so happening at the level of the single trial yes um some, some of Skinner's rats long, uh, would go from baseline to maximal rate in a single trial. And that, and that was what suggested to him that, that uh, learning might be more or less instantaneous. Hmm. Rather than being a gradual process, the, the so-called learning curve, where you, you get slowly better and better and better at something and, until you're, you're finally accomplished, which is the natural and normal experience of everyone on Earth, practically. Um, but Skinner's, uh, the, Skinner's point in this letter is that the learning curve is an artifact of um, a, a bunch of sort of chaotic stuff that goes on when, when an organism is learning. Um, so that was the first point, that conditioning might happen all at once. And the second was that, um, um, let's see, what was the second? I guess it's that... that uh, the organism is never gets the environment twice in a row in exactly the same way. Rat uh, goes to the feeder and comes back and it's in a slightly different posture from the posture it was in when it first pressed the lever and from the second time and the third time and the fourth time. Every time the rat approaches the lever, chances are it's slightly different from, uh, from the previous time um, or perhaps any of the previous times um so uh and
1: then and then those two observations together i think then
2: account for the what appears to be a gradual learning curve exactly and he 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 shows two hypothetical cumulative records of two rats and and one of them is uh, uh steep at first and then then slows down and the other one's slow at first and then speeds up and the two converge on a kind of terminal rate um and um, Skinner interprets this in terms of the relationship between the uh, posture of the rat and the stimuli that are impinging on the receptors of the rat on each, on each successive occasion. So um, uh, th- th- there's, a, there's a fable about five blind men and the elephant. And one, one blind man says the elephant uh, is like a snake because he's hanging under the trunk. Another elephant's hanging onto the tail. He says, "No, no, it's a fly swatter." Third one is hugging the, the leg and says, "No, it's a tree." And the fourth one is uh, hanging onto the tusks. And says, "Oh my God, it's a um, it's a spear." So uh, each each blind man comes away from the elephant um, with a different uh, impression of what an elephant is. And <clears throat> Skinner's point is that a rat who who approaches the lever from the trunk end um, will be and and, and presses the lever and and reinforcement follows, will be thoroughly conditioned to the trunk of the lever. Mm -hmm. lever. Uh, If he comes at it from the leg side, he has to start from scratch um, because the leg is nothing like the trunk. Well, let's let's repeatedly say it's completely unlike the trunk and then the tail and then the tusk and so on. Um, Once the rat has sampled all of the different elements of the lever, or the elephant, then the rat can come at it from any point of view, and be thoroughly uh, rearing to go to press the lever. So he interprets the initial faltering in the in the learning curve as um, as a kind of stimulus sampling, where it's the 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 the, the rat is is um, adapting to or is a, is coming under the control of more and more and more of the stimulus elements that are present um at the time of reinforcement yeah
1: this you know before we started recording you and i were talking a little bit about units of analysis and i mm-hmm. think this is a um a good example of um potentially a more molecular account um of that that would to give rise to order at a more molecular level so here the the, the apparent learning curve I, I think what we're saying is is um an outcome of there being an, an increasing number of stimuli for which the conditioning is taking place and for yes, which we're now exactly. occasioning behavior. And over time as that population grows, the likelihood of behavior will grow also just as a function of an increased likelihood that the, the organism encounters one of those stimuli that occasions a response, right?
2: Yes, that's 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 exactly right. And and it's hard to deny that is it's it's it may seem implausible that a rat wouldn't know a lever from a lever from a lever but the anecdote of the elephant reveals a case where an elephant isn't an elephant isn't an elephant you you, you um and, and at a more molecular level a lever isn't the same lever if you look at it from the side as if you look at it straight on and so on and sure. and how is an organism quotes supposed to know that it's the same lever, Knowing knows that it's the same lever according to its experience or according to similar levers it's seen in the past, or in this case, according to the, um, it, it's, it's, um, you know, the details of its uh, approach to the lever. So when, when you look at things carefully and, 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 and closely enough, the uh, Skinner's point of view seems extremely plausible. and and really hard to deny. Um, So that revealed um, Skinner's highly molecular interpretation of stimulus control. Now, the interesting thing is he didn't publish this. Uh, And uh, my interpretation of why he didn't publish it is that he, in in 1935, he wrote the paper on the generic nature of the concepts of stimulus and response and um at that in that paper he um uh, he, he's talking about an organism that's been exposed to a, stim, uh, a context for a substantial amount of time um and and even then we see lots of variability in the uh, s- we see slight variations in the say the, the lever press or the key pack uh from trial to trial and we see slight differences in orientation from trial to trial, indicating the stimulus elements are are, are shifting. Um, But in that paper, he says, what we're interested in is orderliness in our data. And if we we don't obsess about these microscopic details, we can find order at the level of something like pressing the lever being the the definition of the response rather than pressing the lever with the left paw or the the force of yep. you know, 19.6 newtons and so on.
1: I, I wonder if there's a sense in which the the advancement of his, um, the the technology for the operant chamber and uh, arranging things such that if you're just measuring the microswitch closure, then that's sufficient. If that then, you, you know, does it, um, abolish the need to to describe at a more molecular level or result in a lack of continued
2: theory in that direction. Well, one of the interesting passages in that paper, the 1935 paper, and, and which was uh, reproduced virtually verbatim in behavior of organisms, um, was um, that he said if you get too, if you look too closely, um, the order will decrease, that mm-hmm. it um, if you only count lever presses that are made with a very 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 narrow range of forces and in a very 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 narrow range of postures, then you'll get worse data than if you uh, in- include the whole um, the whole generic term hmm. um, mm-hmm. and something which uh surprised me um, and he he acknowledges in that paper that the that it may just be the the crudity of our analytical tools that that it, it might be possible to to um, get more orderly data at a more molecular level with more refined tools. Um, but I did a little little demonstration with um, with pigeons at Smith College, where I, um, I first of all started off on a continuous reinforcement schedule, where the pigeons are just Uh, banging away on the key at a very high rate. And I looked at the distribution of inter-response times, that is, how long does the pigeon pause? And um, the vast majority of pecs were very rapid, very very short pauses. But every now and then, the pigeon would pause for a second or two seconds or five seconds or ten seconds. Um, And then I um, switched to a DRL DRL schedule, differential reinforcement of low rate, where the pigeon had to wait two and a half seconds to get a and the distribution shifted so the um the pigeon was now pecking it most mainly pecking around one and a half to three and a half seconds mm-hmm. again with some long pauses and some rapid pecks. and then i shifted the drl five seconds and again the distribution shifted and then i um i said let's look at the responses that just um that perfectly matched the reinforcement contingency. Hmm. Let's look at the the key that happened between 5 seconds when the window opens and 5.05 seconds or something like that. I forgot what the window was. Right. And was a window around the, the the reinforcement criterion. Well, the cumulative record was f- terrible. It was just hmm. a, you'd get a response here and then a response here and a response over there. That is it's too fine-grained an analysis for um, for 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 this particular behavior—that is, the pigeon doesn't have a watch, and it, it's not this behavior isn't so precisely timed that it falls right on the criterion.
1: But, but I wonder if you um, it, in that preparation, I wonder if you if you took a, if you plotted the distribution around that point. Yes, you know, like you've got the, the sort of the sub threshold and then the super threshold responses, and I wonder if you'd see that if you you know zoom in enough. I wonder if you'd see that distribution
2: shift. You know? you, yeah, yeah. So you, you zoom zoom back a little, widen the window, and you get a nice mm, yes. Poisson distribution or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically a normal curve if you look if you mm. cut off the tails. So it's a, it's quite a nice distribution around the around the criterion and I, I think john sees the same thing with, with respect to force that you 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 get a few very very weak is it john is this true your distribution is is has a peak falling off on
0: either side yeah it's uh it's I don't, I don't think it would be a stretch to call it a, uh, you know, normally distributed fairly. So the criterion. Uh, and that's, that's certainly what we see. It's not quite normal in that at the, uh, at the lower forces, there tends to be disproportionately more of those. So there is, uh, you know, some, some skewing, but, um, but if you were, as you indicated, if you were to cut out, say the top, I don't know, I am just pulling this off the top, like two and a half three 3% of the, the extreme forces, it would be a pretty normal, pretty normal.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think the eggheads call it a Poisson distribution, but but if you if you if you chop off the the oddball responses at each end, you end up with something that looks pretty normal. Um, and the cumulative record is just perfectly straight. Well, mm-hmm. it's it's as as straight as an animal can get it, pretty much. At least my pigeons uh, in 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 these in these in these experiments. The, the data were beautiful if you widened the windows slightly. So, so my, my point is, that I think Skinner um, lost interest in trying to um, identify every photon in his um, laboratory preparations. The futility of it, for mm-hmm. one, it would it would just it would take you a whole lifetime to try to try to identify all the stimuli in a in a, in a single um, example. Steph,
3: I'm really hoping you can help refine my um, understanding of mutual replaceability here, and maybe how it pertains to descriptive and functional response classes.
2: Yeah, uh, Skinner says that um, the the uh, we want a level of analysis that that um, that gives us the most orderly data possible, and under these conditions, we find that the response class that's defined in this um relatively generic way gives gives us a a a beautiful analytical tool in which the responses are quote mutually replaceable in the quantitative um tools we use to analyze the, the 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 data and what he means by this is that um a a uh uh, Any any member of the class, let's let's just take three members. The the, the rat can press the lever with one paw, both the left paw, the right paw, or both paws. Um, And if you you look at um, right paw presses, they occur sort of randomly throughout the distribution of lever presses. You look at right left paw presses, they occur more or less randomly with respect to the um, the distribution, and the same with, with, with both paws. So there, there's no uh, pattern to the uh, to the variability within the class. That the that there's no um, that that as far as the cumulative record is concerned, it doesn't matter whether it's this or that or the other response. Um, now, um, Skinner acknowledges that there are highly unusual ways to press the bar, which should not be counted. But he says those are so rare that we can neglect them. So is this the, is like a
1: quantification issue. So if you're the, they're going to be um, a collection of topographies that are, that are affected by some independent variable. And, and as opposed to trying to plot them all separately, if they are if they are affected in the same way, we can we can um, treat them as being quantitatively interchangeable. Yes, with regard to our data analysis.
2: Right. Uh, now, if there were a second way of getting food, if the rat could um, pull a chain, let's say, and get food as well, um, um, and if um, th- that would not be quantitatively mutually replaceable unless they were really indistinguishable in, 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 the, in the cumulative record. That is, um, um, if the rat more or less randomly alternated between one and the other, then, um, then they would be quantitatively mutually replaceable. But if the rat pulled a lever, you know, 10 times in a row, um, and then switch to the lever pressing and so on. and, and we and we and we plotted them separately, we would get um, we, we would have breaks in the in the in the pattern
1: um, but, you know, Dave, I also if if you imagine um, if you imagine there's a there's a chain pull that's that's it's harder to get to, it's harder to pull the chain, the lever presses and an easier thing to do. Even if they both produce the same consequence I, would, I don't imagine that both would be at the same occur at the same probability given that environment.
2: yeah right right it, it would be extremely unlikely I think um, and, and this sort of uh, leads to the to where we're headed with all this but um, um, but I was trying to explain why I thought Skinner dropped that uh, extremely molecular perspective, and I think it, I think it was really just a pragmatic consideration that you 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 can't do it. Um, you can do it on paper, but it's as he did in his letter to Keller, but you can't easily do it in the in the laboratory. Right. And you
1: you know you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. You, our our group, and I know my my preference is always for molecular analyses, and i I tend to find them to be um, helpful if you don't get into arguments over the philosophy regarding units of analysis and that kind of stuff, right? Like if it, in Skinner, the, the, the emphasis on pragmatism was so prevalent. So if it's, if the data are orderly, then they're orderly and then let's move on and, and explore nature that way. Yeah. But you know, the the other thing I just want to say quickly is then, but, but there are such good reasons to, to explore that space interpretively and that can open up some doors. So there is like, I, I think about, um, I'm going to get all this wrong. So John, you can correct me, but I, I remember um, watching John present on some of his research and it had to do with the effects of cocaine on food maintained key pecking. And it's, and again, I'm going to get this wrong, but normally what you see with, with a stimulant like that is it increases hate like it increases moving around and doing stuff so you've got like the normally an organism would be increasing locomotion or something like that but the effect on the rate of food maintained key pecking is that it decreases and so i remember john showing this presentation where he ripped the top off of an operon chamber and put a camera in there so you could see what the pigeons do right and then i i think you if i remember correctly you made sort of a grid and you had people counting the movement of the beak into different spaces right is that Am I getting that sort of right, John?
0: Um, yes, yeah, sort of right. It wasn't people. It was it was mostly me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Over 400 hours of pigeons really? walking under the influence of cocaine, something something like that. I did have some some people help me do reliability, but uh, I became the world expert on how many times pigeons would cross grids when under the influence of cocaine.
1: Yeah. But the the finding I think was that. Yeah, the key pecking comes down, but you know what? The locomotion increases. There, they're all over the place, right? And so you're so. And part of it, I think, in terms of mechanism and identifying what what functional relations are really at play, you wouldn't just conclude that like food maintained behavior gets suppressed, right? Like I I think the conclusion there is that you've got competing alternative activities, and it, without without delving in and and producing the data that you need to be able to see it. Then you miss a, a controlling variable that really matters.
0: Yeah, I, you know, um, I believe this was John, one of John Gibbon's studies, and um, but I believe they looked for a, a, in another example. They looked at um, uh, auto shaping awesome. under a small and large chamber when presumably the the pigeon could walk around a greater area. Or they actually put a little, a little alcove in the chamber that really sort of held the bird very close to the key. So the bird couldn't really make uh, as many surplus superfluous movements. Mm -hmm. And they found that auto shaping actually increased when the pigeons sort of movements were constrained by the, by the key. This might fit with the sort of stimulus sampling when I've constrained Mm -hmm. what the pigeon can sample in the environment the conditioning occurred much faster than when I opened that space up. And now there's just more for the pigeon to explore happenstance in the course of learning. Great the, um, the, point.
2: The distinction between Skinner 35 and Skinner 31 is is actually not a, uh, there's, no, there's no inconsistency there. That is Skinner 31 letter to Keller is talking about the acquisition of behavior in Skinner 35, he's talking about a response, which is already where the, the animal has already sampled, so to speak, the full array of response topographies and stimulus uh, arrangements. Um, and at that level, um, one, once the animal is fully under control of all properties of, of, the, of the environment, then then this is when we get this kind of um, orderliness where um, uh, no matter what the orientation of the rat is, it will press the lever, uh, and it will press the lever uh, you know, more or less, not randomly, but, but according to the particular circumstances. So, so uh, at, once the, that point has been achieved, then there's no advantage to talking about stimulus elements anymore, mm-hmm. unless you, until you change the environment uh, in, in some way. Well, that's the background to the discussion that we're going to go into now. And that is, uh, uh, oh, well, before I get into that, I want to say that um, uh, this this elemental nature of stimulus control was expanded by um, uh, William Estes, Bill Estes, as they call him, uh, who was one of Skinner's students in a theory called stimulus sampling theory, Mm very very compatible if not identical with Skinner's um interpretation of stimulus elements but it's a mathematical model and it depends upon the notion that the animal is randomly sampling stimulus properties from the environment um,
1: which like an urn problem one of those like them yes if you're drawing a ball out of an urn, and then you you marking the ones. The, the the over time, the more trials of that that occur, the more the more likely it is you pick one that you've already marked, something like that.
2: Yeah. Yes. That, that, that's right. It, oh, you, you're you're picking a handful of balls from the urn each time you, you you reach in, and and to the extent that the balls are balls that you picked up before, it will have one kind of effect or another kind of. Um, so. Uh, so it's not, Skinner wasn't the only one to think of this. And even though Estes was Skinner's student, I think by the time Estes came into Skinner's life, uh, Skinner had, oh, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know what, what went on in the classroom, but but uh, uh, by that time, Skinner had published the behavior of organisms and, and had a, a more pragmatic view. He was less interested in acquisition and more interested in, in um, you know, Schedules, studies. schedules, things like that. Um, um, Blau, Don Blau, in a 1975 paper, um, this was cited in my PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a quote from that paper looks as though it was um, taken verbatim from Skinner's letter. So um, different people uh, have interpreted stimulus control in the same way. Skinner's idea is some kind of uh, crazy lunatic scheme. Um, but what what did surprise me was Skinner didn't develop this theme. But but in the in Science and Human Behavior, he has a passage on stimulus control in which he returns to the point and he says, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, uh, uh, we, we we should uh, think of stimulus properties rather than stimuli, and to the extent that one environment contains Stimulus properties—the—the the, uh, that that are were were present in previously reinforced trials—the—the the animal tend to respond. Um, so um, we we need to think not so much in terms of the stimuli that the experimenter is pointing at, but the stimulus properties that the organism is sensitive to, and that those those might not be the same thing. So that we can get a discrepancy then,
1: right? Like the 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 stimuli. That we might define functionally with regard to the effect on behavior might be different than the stimuli that are affecting the control of the experimenter.
2: That's right. That's right. The the experimenter sees a um sees an elephant and the and the rat sees a tusk. Right. So uh uh and, and it also accounts for stimulus generalization. Um you 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 know, you 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 run away from the elephant, you run away from a rhinoceros right. because of uh, shared elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a part of this that I've, I I always like um,
1: if if our interpretation, our theory can be unifying. That that I think is a a good goal, and it's part of what I like about this analysis is that it helps us take something like stimulus generalization and and incorporate it into a a broader view of what's happening, as opposed to yes. a separate
2: distinct yeah. in- phenomenon. Exactly, it's the it's uh uh to the extent that we can have a parsimonious and comprehensive interpretation of the whole panorama of behavior. I mean, that's our goal, and and this seems like to me to be a a, the way to approach that goal. And I think Skinner was was um, very much on board with that goal, and and his I find papers and books to be a just a gold mine of of um highly highly relevant um insight into this to this this dream of having a completely comprehensive science of behavior yeah you got one more month you better get into Skinner better. Right? oh yeah. you know, <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right uh, well the the archives are open to anyone so so it's it's not really the fact that i'm on the board that enables me to do this it's just that I tend to spend more time uh, down there. And Julie Vargas, Skinner's daughter, uh, has a whole pile of stuff in her, in her den that, that I was pawing through and came across this letter. Um, so uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, the, the door is not closed to me, nor anyone else. Uh, any one of you can go down to the Harvard archives and, and um, muck through there.
1: After COVID, we should take a, a lab field trip.
2: Cool, that's a great idea.
1: Do, so, Dave, do you want to? So let's, so let's, um, let's move forward. So we've got we have Skinner laying out this this sort of molecular account, uh, um, sort of like an atomic discriminative stimulus control the, the, the particular the stimuli that are exerting control happening at a, a more molecular level, and then um, that there are some unifying outcomes of taking that viewpoint with regard to generalization. You, you push this farther to to um apply uh, some of this logic to how we
2: define response classes. How we define what response classes. Yes, yes. Okay. So um so I I um um I, I turn from from stimulus classes to response classes okay? mm-hmm. and and Skinner has a another quote from um uh science and human behavior that is um let's see if I can find it here. Um I, I I can't find it off the top of my head. But anyway, um he, he he talks about response elements. Um and um damn I can't uh okay I'm sorry that I I, I, I thought I had the quote right here at my fingertips. But um the um, The question is, how are we gonna define a response class? And response classes have a traditional definition. Um, And uh, one of the most common textbooks in in behavior analysis, the definition of a response class is this. Response class is a group of responses of varying topography, all of which produce the same effect on the environment. Um, Now, in my experience, this is uh, very widely held. By all behavior analysts, uh, um, who who don't um, who seem not to question whether topography is relevant. Um, Can we? I want to. I want to flush this out a little bit. So the this this is
1: um, at least the the way that I tend to think about it, or or the place my training landed me was the um, a very general uh conceptualization of response classes and some some more specific so so like um an operant class being defined by or or that being one definition of an operant class is a type of response class so responding that that is maintained by the same reinforcer and then the sort of the descriptive version would be responses the collection of response topographies that all have the, the same consequence the same effect in the environment did, did, so Go ahead, Dave. I was gonna ask if you make that distinction also. Is it do you view that as a, an operant class as a type of response class? Is that uh oh,
2: no, I, I I I'm moving in the other direction. That is, I, I'm gonna call an operant class um uh, the narrower class, and we're gonna call it a motivational class for the larger class. Okay. Okay. So um
1: well, let's walk through it. I, I didn't mean to be right. So the so the the notion there, and I I've, I've seen that also, and I've run into folks who make that distinction. That that to me seems like a, a descriptive response class definition. So they, there are this collection of response topographies that have the same effect.
2: But oh yes, yes, it's,
1: it's distinct from the the response topographies that all increase in probability as a function of encountering that particular reinforcement.
2: Y- yes, I'm I'm sorry, I I. I uh uh th- that's correct that is the the the, the so called descriptive response class is usually defined in terms of a common consequence yeah. so um okay. uh, uh but i but i'm arguing well and, and Katania distinguishes between these but um i um i'm arguing that we should um restrict the notion of response class topographically similar uh, responses that have the same effect on the environment. And the, um, the issue is um, how does response induction occur? That is wh- when, the, when um, the whole notion, the, the notion of a response class is intended to provide the experimenter with a justification for counting topographically distinct, different Mm. exemplars of behavior as members of the same class. This enables us to to say that the second lever press is a member of the same class as the first lever press, even though they differ slightly. Um, And it's essential that we have this notion of a response class. Otherwise we wouldn't have any order. Uh, That is, if we only counted responses that were uh, perfectly identical every time, we'd never get it. Mm -hmm. But if we say that, uh, hell with it, we're gonna count anything that presses the lever as a response class. Um, Then we get beautifully orderly data. Um, And so the implication has to be, and this this is the point I think it can't be emphasized enough. It has to be the case that reinforcement of one topography affects the entire class of uh, of members of that of that unit.
1: Yeah. So we. I, so so to um, the, the way in which you are treating the the um, the defining features of what we call a response class is is yeah. different than that the first definition that you laid out, so instead of saying um it's it's everything anything that has the same effect on the environment i think I think what you're saying is that by definition we're we're going to define a response class as um all of the topographies that are affected in the same fashion by the same environmental
2: manipulation, something like that's that that's right that's right so so when reinforcement strikes um, it reinforces what just happened at that yeah. moment, yeah. what happened at that moment is a set of, is a, is a complex set of response elements in Skinner's term. That is the, um, l- let's, get, l- let's not dwell on what the response elements are at the moment, but let's just say elements A through, a through M occurred at the moment, the rat pressed that lever, A through M are reinforced. N through Z or not, but on the next trial, um, letters A, D, K, and L appear along with uh, O, Q, W, and V, and the lever is pressed the second time. It's pressed the second time because of the presence of A, J, K, and w, or whatever, whatever I said. It's, it's because the second response shares elements with the first response that it occurs. Yeah. So so
1: this is like this is like if if you imagine the rat can do a million things to press the lever. So it can put its paws on and press down. It could also put its like chin on and press down. It could lay on its back on top of the lever. It could use its tail and sit on. There are a million things that could result in a depression lever. But the, the mere, the reinforcement of one of them does not increase the probability of all of those products. Right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly right. It reinforces what happened. And the response class uh, is all of the ways that those reinforced elements can be permuted with other elements to bring bring about the closure of the mm-hmm. switch. Yep. So, so this is like, the imagine there's a lever press and it's primarily the
1: right paw, but some left paw. And then the, the next time it's a little more left. And, and I think what you're saying is that the, the degree to which there are common elements, like the, the reinforcement um, from instance to instance to instance will observe
2: the effect on the common elements, right? Like, that's right, that's right. And this provides us with an actual predictive and explanatory tool. That is, it predicts that we'll get um, um, uh, some of these elements perhaps mixed in with other elements. And, and, uh, uh, and it explains why the responses hang together. They hang together because some of the elements of that behavior have been reinforced in the past. Right. So we, we have a, a, a complete. Predictive and explanatory account, but it does not, as as you just said, Jason, does not include um, doing a backflip and and pressing it with your tail. Yeah,
1: and it seems to me like this, like we talked about with stimulus generalization, this would this would unify uh, our our um, response generalization or induction curves. Yes,
2: that's point. right. That's right. Uh, and and of course, response differentiation as well. We you know. I'm if the if the contingencies change so that only forceful lever presses are required, then um, you know then we have the extinction of some elements. And sure. So so, on. The,
1: so so just to highlight this for everybody, so the 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 idea of a of a response class necessarily entails that there are um, that members are affected together by some manipulation, and so if um, if it's the case that you've got a, a Child who engages in escape-maintained aggression, and we take some break response that we establish in that child. We teach the child to touch a card or to ask for a break, and and that results in the same consequence that aggression did. But we apply differential reinforcement. We reinforce the break response and we put the aggression on extinction. We because we're reinforcing the break response, we don't also see an increase in aggression. We see a differential increase in the break response, but not the aggression and that we might view that people will talk about that as differentiation the, the 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 differential increase in the probability of topographies that have resulted in reinforcement in comparison to those that haven't but that that's showing you I think by our definition of what a response class is that those have three numbers of different response classes this the same intervention the same environmental manipulation is taking place but they are being affected differently so, it, so Dave it seems to me like that the 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 fact that we can and do get differentiation, and the fact that we can and do um, observe the formation of discriminated operants, differential responding things, and differential discriminative stimuli, shows you that they, those can't be identified as members of the same response I
2: think, I think by definition, we cannot be saying that those are members of the same response class. Yes, uh, but this goes against the the grain of that general definition that i quoted earlier that uh the, the the notion that topography is irrelevant um that it's that um anything that leads to the same consequence is going to rise and fall together right. uh, and as and, and as you said jason that doesn't comport with our experience uh the notion of response hierarchies in in extinction um you know you got a kid who's who does four or five things uh uh to escape demands goes through the hierarchy of, of a response. You extinguish one, you don't extinguish the whole group.
1: Right, so, so, here's, I, so I, here's part of, this is part of where I need help with this, and I wanna also highlight this for people. So that, um, here's the way that I, I historically talked about it, when I'm trying to explain the, the problem behavior treatment process. Um, I, I like to highlight the fact that, that, that the kid is coming to you with established response processes. And the, the goal of the functional analysis is to figure out what those classes are, what the variables are. And then I, I would talk about the use of differential reinforcement to, to modify the membership of the response. So this is historically how I've done so the, the idea being by differentially reinforcing a man or some appropriate communication, we change the relative probability of what will happen given the, the EO. The evocative circumstance, the EO for the reinforcer that characteristically has maintained problem behavior. And that you know your treatment has been effective when the same EO that used to evoke aggression, that you showed evoked aggression in your functional analysis, now it doesn't. Now it produces mandate. And so historically the way that I've talked about the Dave is that you you've changed the membership of the response class. But you'll notice I'm saying I'm saying they're the response class, like it's one thing. And I think what you're saying is that it's it's not. Right, that there are multiple. Right. It, it,
2: uh,
1: th- that it's one thing as opposed to as opposed to being multiple. Like you know, an alternative interpretation would be aggression came to us as a response, and it's been reinforced, and it's it's been characteristically reinforced. And given a particular EO, we observe it, and now we differentially reinforce something else, and it. It seems like an alternative way of talking about this is that we the, the difference reinforcement establishes a different response, but one that is more probable. So ultimately, given this, this EO that used to evoke aggression, now we observe this new response class that we've generated. Is that, is that coherent with what you're saying, there?
2: Uh Yes. Uh, um... um. I want to bring topography back into the definition of a response class. Yeah, because I don't. I'm, I want to. I want to like push you on that because I don't know if
1: you do. I. I and it's you're using the, the I don't know how many people will, how many people will get their feathers ruffled about this, but um, the at least my read. and I have to go back to it, but my read of the thirty five paper was to put that aside largely. So the this generic nature. Is part of the title, and and so the are. You're. I think what you're saying is there are there are some common features that have um, to members of a response class that they, we can we can see that there are shared elements with regard to these members. But I don't I don't know if we need to, topography as a defining feature. Can't we just observe that and then say that is what the response class is, and we observe it functionally. We see that functionally speaking, the outcome is that these responses that share these common elements have increased. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Like it's the the, the way that I teach my students uh, the definition of a response class already entails some of this not probably because of, I don't know where it came from, but reading and in my personal experience. So I'll teach my students that a response class is uh, I'll do it a couple ways. One is a collection of response topographies that all participate in the same function relation with the class of stimuli. Or I'll teach them it's a collection of response topographies that all co vary as a function of the same environment. But you'll notice I have the word topography in there. You know?
0: If, if, if I could, I, I wonder if where Dave's saying topography should come to the fore in the uh, conceptual analysis is if you wanna say they covary vary or they hang together, why do they do that, right? Mm. So you've got to talk about why does one topography get linked up with the other one and how, because they, they don't exist at the same time. And so right. philosophically, this, this is really kind of like a river always changes and yet we call it the same river. Mm. How does one topography that no longer exists get to be linked up later with another topography that's pressing the same lever? And I think Dave is saying, well, there, there's got to actually be subcomponents that are there that 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 does that bridging and um, you know so that so that so ultimately what you're saying is true yes the topographies co-vary but I think Dave's trying to uh, I sort of feel like the conversation with I think Dave is just saying but but I'm trying to explain why they co-vary yeah, more yeah yeah
2: I don't know if there's a if there's a disagreement or not maybe taking some more extreme examples. Uh, would be helpful um, uh, but 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 to sort of finish off the the analysis i 'm suggesting that we use the motivational class to tie together all all behavior that has the same consequence, and we use the response class or operant uh, to to talk about um, um, uh, elements of that or, or 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 different Different, different response classes within that motivational class. That, uh, so the, the analogy I use in my PowerPoint is uh, different ways of adding numbers. You can add them with a pencil and paper. You can add them with a calculator. You can add them by Googling it. You can do all sorts of things to, to get a sum, um, but they don't vary together. Um, if, you, if, if your calculator's batteries batteries go, go, go dead, it doesn't affect the other ways of adding adding numbers. Uh,
1: Dave, and, you, would, you would say that those are all the same motivational class,
2: but members of the Yes, uh, I, just, I just made up that term motivational class. Uh, uh, in, in light of Jack Michael's papers, I think, I think it's correct. That is consequence um, brings to strength this whole disparate group of- sure. It, that they have nothing in common with each other except the consequence right
1: so, so to sort to play that out that's that's like um if, if in my problem behavior example we we might view both aggression and manding as members of the same motivational class. they have historically resulted in a characteristic outcome we it, the, in the sense of there being no true synonyms in any given environment there's going to be one operant that is uh, dominant that is most likely. Right. After treatment, prior to treatment it's the aggression. After treatment it's the, the manning. But if if we were to see manning undergo extinction, the the responding that we observe subsequently isn't isn't random. We would observe then another member of the same motivational class. That's,
2: that's, right. that's right. Potentially right yeah yeah. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm, the, the reason I keep <clears throat> coming back to topography is this. Um, it, if we, if we think of the effect of a reinforcer as affecting that particular response that just occurred, um, then any any subsequent behavior that includes parts of that response will be stronger than some other behavior that does not include parts of the, that response. But we can't, we can't assume that just because we reinforce um, one particular topography, that wholly different topographies that do not share any common elements will be affected by it. That's, that's what I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to dissociate those two conclusions. That is, we do expect topographic generalization, if you will. We don't expect uh, complete... Um, s- Participation in the same response.
1: Points. I think I think that's what we're saying, right? Like it, it's, it, I think it's obvious from the it, from the acquisition discussion, like if we reinforce a rat using a pause to press the lever, it's not going to start using it's tail, right? right, right. We, we wouldn't spontaneously see that, that'd be crazy. That's right. right. That's right. It, it's also the case that if you had established a variety of different operands that have the same characteristic constants. And, and one of them undergoes extinction. All of them wouldn't undergo extinction, but you right. would expect the, the ones that have this shared element would. Yes, yes. And I think there's probably a study in there someplace to help, to help show this, you know what I mean? Like if you were to establish a variety of operands that have shared or, or not, Mm-hmm. response elements, and then you put one one of them on extinction. What happens to the relative probability of the others?
0: Yeah. Yes, I think so. Could, could uh, because I have to interpret everything through my own research because I'm I'm very narrow-minded that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I really find value in, in what Dave is saying because it it helps it helps. So if, if we talk about reinforcement as this 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 um, effect that strengthens an entire class we we I have to I have to figure out, or i'm I'm puzzled by the fact that when I arrange force requirements for a rat and I say arrange like a twenty five gram force requirement and the rat meets the twenty five gram force requirement with say some twenty five, some twenty eight, some thirty gram response presses, mm-hmm. that that works out fine. But the rat suddenly doesn't start pressing with fifty gram response presses, even though that would also satisfy. That would have to technically be part of the. The class right sure. that that would also satisfy the force requirement and that doesn't happen
2: um, yeah i mean john your
1: your your preparation is really a good illustration of this because you would expect the reinforcement effect to equally increase the probability of all threshold responses right and, and, and,
0: sure. it, and it, doesn't. it doesn't yeah it doesn't even if you force the rat to make a few 50s and sort of raise locally the probability of that and then shift the criterion back down they occur for a little bit, they continue to be reinforced and then they go away.
3: Yeah. Right. I wanted to offer um, a clinical example. It's, I think, related to what John is saying. And we see this a lot in functional analyses. Um, I'll, I'll give head-directed self-injury as an example here, whereby you'll see across time, sometimes a decrease in the intensity or the force which with with which that is um, observed within session. And so I think if you look at this from a response element standpoint, we're capturing some movement of a hand closer to a head, but we have not included force in that contingency and across time that is a response element that we see I leave our sessions, if you will. Could that be an example of differential selection of response elements? Well, go okay. ahead,
0: well, and I was just saying, I, I, yeah, I think that's a, a, a great kind of analogy, and I, I've been looking for documentation for this kind of to help me bridge my little rat world with the broader clinical, I, you know. So, if there are good hard data on on this thing happening, I would like to to get a reference. Um, but but yeah, it seems to me what brings behavior into the clinic is the response class meets a, like there's tissue damage or there's an audible slap, but when you start doing sessions in the in the in the clinic you redefine the response so that you know essentially those things no longer meet the it's like touching your your hand or your face and sure enough that's what the class becomes and so exactly. you that behavior that would not be necessarily clinically relevant uh, but that's what you suddenly are counting because that's how you've defined the response and now the behavior is is readjusting not saying that that doesn't teach you anything about the other but it's this progression that's that's yeah. very interesting yeah. uh, there's a Jasper Brenner is a is a person that's done and, and Suzanne Mitchell have done uh, uh, some really cool experiments sort of um, tracking the adjustment of behavior under different um, what you might call effort requirements or force requirements and um, it's um, you know very informative I think to this kind of this kind of discussion
1: yeah right. so, the, so then you're left with these interesting questions about what what determines the relative probability of the options that are members of the same motivation class right? Or, and I imagine the same thing would take place if we're talking about discriminated reference. There might be m- multiple responses that have a history of reinforcement with regard to some particular discriminative stimulus. What, what then determines the relative probability of those and how do we shift them around?
3: You know, I'm interested also in movement through response hierarchies in the absence of these really salient uh, external stimulus changes, because we see that also. So, you know, I don't think discriminated responding requires Oh, maybe I don't want to say this, but I question whether it requires really salient external changes for us to see topographical movement in a given hierarchy of responding.
1: Um, Steph, I think I think you're you're referencing one of the student questions about um, you know what in in a given environment if responding under those extinction one of these operants under those extinction.
3: Right? Yes, I was thinking about that a lot last week. Yeah, what are,
1: what are you? Do you want to do you want to read that question?
3: Yeah, I think it might be easier to to go to your example for last week. So Jason does this in his classes. We've all been there Um, and he'll ask a person to take notes and they begin with some sort of pen, we'll say. So we start taking notes and then he takes our pen away. And um, after that, we might um, stop taking notes until he asks us again, imposes that same EO and then we'll do something else. Obviously we can't write. Um, And I think that's an example where there is a really clear shift in the stimulus conditions. I went from pen in hand, I can see it, I can feel it, um, to now I see it in Jason's hand and my hand feels empty. So that's a clear shift in my environment. Um, Let's say Dave is in the room also, he's the only other person that I have to recruit help from. So I turn to Dave and I say, hey, do you have a pen I can borrow? He says, no. Okay, well, do you have a tape recorder so I can record this thing? He says, no. Well, can I borrow your laptop and then take notes that way? Um, Dave didn't change. He's the same person, uh, but in that uh, sequence of events, he went from being a person who maybe had a pen to a person with no pen, no tape recorder, and no computer for use. Um, and that uh, we see, I did different things, different response topographies came out of that interaction, but he, nothing very salient was altered about the external uh, environment for me. Yeah, except for your
1: heart, you heard no a lot. Say that again? You heard, you heard no repeatedly. Well
3: that's that's where I'm getting to is that I think another item for discussion would be that uh, consequences uh, can be discriminative for subsequent responding and we can tie movement through response hierarchies to things other than physically dissimilar um, environments, physical environments. You have use the
1: term hierarchy and I think that that's a way to think about these these motivational classes that they're they perhaps they're composed of operas that that have some relative probability to them. And yes. Notice
3: I didn't ask him for tickets to SeaWorld, right? Like they they right. allow me to take then, notes those things.
1: Right. Right. You stayed within the motivational class, but you moved in orderly fashion through through members of that class, and and then you're at you're at some interesting research questions about how do you how do we change that? How do we move those around? And there's there's also Dave, they I've I don't know if I've argued, but they wrote this, but we um Dave will give this analogy of this bubbling cauldron and this this thought that there's there are changes in the relative probability of response classes or whatever we're calling them. But you might not see them like sub threshold. Um and it, this is sort of similar. So you you, you sort of wonder if if you had some dominant operant that's a member of a motivational class, and that's the one that you always observe, and you don't see the others until it undergoes extinction, right? If if we're creative enough, maybe we can do a study in which we we change the one that emerges once the dominant one undergoes extinction. You know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. in that sense, you might be able to have a demonstration that you can, in that way anyway, change the hierarchy um, of these responses, even if you aren't observing them in that particular context.
3: And try to push um, maladaptive or things like dangerous behavior down to the bottom of that hierarchy and provide a bunch of alternatives in the context of extinction.: sure.
2: Sure. our Our notion of stimulus control entails the implication, or, the, or there is an implication of our understanding of stimulus control that many behaviors are simultaneously more likely than they were before the presentation of the mm-hmm. so an sd that's associated with a whole bunch of different um behaviors or or let's say a complex environment that includes many sds m- many behaviors are stronger than zero in that in that environment and when one is extinguished uh, if, if the behaviors are incompatible with one, one another mm-hmm. them has to be has to win at the expense of the yeah. others uh and um, but if that one extinguishes, it goes down in probability, and there's not just one, but there's a whole plethora of other behavior that is um, potentiated by the uh, by the context. Mm-hmm. So, um, if if asking if 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 reaching for your pen is on extinction, um, asking me is not on extinction yet. So you ask me, uh, I I shut that down pretty fast. And then you, then you turn to you know looking for a chisel and a hammer to, to to take notes with. So, uh, um, so I, I think this notion of a of a response relative response probabilities, uh, I think it's correct, and I think we I think it helps explain the notion of hierarchies, um, because of the effect of the extinction of the most dominant one. What you're going to get is this something else. Yeah. What do you get next? Right. But, it, right. It, but, uh, but if if you were suddenly transported out of space where there were no discriminative stimuli, you wouldn't be asking for a computer or for a pen or for anything else. You'd say, "WTF?" You know. You, you, there would be a complete overhaul in the panorama of res, of response probabilities. But the extinction of the extinction of using a pen leaves all of the myriad discriminative stimuli in your environment still hammering away saying, me next, me next, me next.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, can I relay an anecdote that happened to me yesterday that made me think of your uh, your bubbling cauldron? Uh, and I, it's totally anecdotal. Of but, um, but I was uh, in a thesis uh, proposal and uh, Bill, ha- Bill Ahern was, um, was uh, in, the, in the room and he had this photograph. Now he, he's, he's like this big on my screen because there's several people in one on a Zoom call, but he had this black and white photograph that's sitting um, in, his, in his background. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, you know, what is that? And so we go on with the proposal and every once in a while I look at it. And, and just like I'm taking up much of the center of this photograph uh, of the image you're seeing so was bill sort of right in the center taking up most of it and then every once in a while i, I would say you know just sort of look, glance at the photograph and and uh, and then i would go back to the conversation and then in the middle of the conversation all of a sudden what popped into my head was that's the end scene from the shining where they pan back from the hotel and there's this you know room full of people in this black and white photo at a at a at a um at a conference or not a conference at the hotel in the lodge and Jack Nicholson of course is up in the front I could never see him because Bill is there mm. so it took quite a while for that to sort of bubble up um but but so here you have the situation where this stimulus is is impinging on my you know receptors for quite a while I didn't immediately say that but at some point it bubbled up and then I, I had to interrupt I said Bill is that the background for, is that the end scene from The Shining? And he said, yeah, it is. Um, Anyway, so, you know, these are sort of really peculiar aspects of behavior that, uh, you know, have have to have some account for them. And anyway, it made me think of you when when that happened.
3: Now for a similar um, bubbling example, I was trying to think of a band name the other day. Couldn't remember, obviously. And I kept saying like, um, kings, it's like Dukes of Stonehenge, and I was just like saying members of royalty, um, and and rock related items, and what I was looking for was queens of the queens of the Stone Age. Uh, maybe I can't even remember it now, but there's there's a group. Um, I finally arrived at their name, but I circled through like every member of royalty first, um, but I didn't go. There was not other, no other groups or titles of people that came up in that moment. Um, it it was related to a queen, which is the first name of the band that I was trying to reference. And I thought, um, like Dave's example in his published paper, um, he'll say like, name a God and a bunch of names can come out and then it's God of thunder. And we winnow out the number of, um, responses you might get from your listener, but they're all related in some way to these initial, uh, occasioning stimuli.
0: Well, I, I, well, I appreciate that example. I, I guess what, what struck me interesting about this example is I wasn't actively trying. Like there is, I had no conscious. I wasn't really talk, like, what is that photograph? Is that this? Is that, I was engaging in none of that. This came sure. because during the Zoom meeting, when this person would speak, I would look at them. When this person would speak, I would look at them and, and look at them and look at them and, and look back at Bill. And somehow the stimulus was washing over my receptors. And at some point, and, and this is what was amazing. I wasn't even actually looking at Bill at the time or his background, but it just, like, there was, it's like, oh my gosh, that's the background of the shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually wasn't trying to operate or figure out, or, or res- I wasn't even trying to respond to that stimulus, uh, but, but it happened. You know. So, you know, cognitive psychologists talk about automatic processing, you know, and, you know, I figure we got to connect up with that somehow because mm-hmm. that's, um, that's what's going on. Yeah.
2: there were stimulus elements there were stimulus elements present uh but not jack nicholson so so you you had some of the elements the 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 less salient elements i guess we call it uh that were present um so it it had some evocative effect on on saying the shining but a very weak evocative effect because it, um uh, for because of all the competing stuff that was going on and uh the the people's voices and people's faces and so on are much more salient in a Zoom meeting. So they were, um, but, but, but what your anecdote shows is that they aren't inert. That is, even though you're not looking at them at the moment, or even though you're not um, uh, trying to figure out what it is at the moment, uh, it's still exerting some kind of stimulus control over your behavior. And this, um, this notion of,
1: Smaller response units or shared response units, I think, is is interesting here too. So John's example is like the there there are elements of the stimulus that are exerting control of responding, and then enough exposure of them or enough of them are are sufficient to finally occasion this response. But part of when when Dave's given his bubbling the, the analogy just to. It quickly is like there's a surface to the culture and there might be some threshold changes in behavior as a function of exposure to stimuli. And we don't have the response yet, but it's coming up and it's coming up and then finally it, it passes the threshold and you see the observance. The, the, the part of that thing that I don't love is this idea that there's a, a change in the probability of a response when that response hasn't happened. You know, that's the part that I don't like about it.
3: A but, latent response?
1: Well, but here's, here's what I do like. So if if what we're saying is the stimuli haven't produced the entire cascade of response elements that results in the, the terminal topography that we are calling in like air quotes, no response, well, maybe it's producing some of the shared elements. And that to me makes sense that, that like, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm experiencing the tip of the tongue phenomenon, I can tell I'm experiencing it. Like I, like there are. So you know that you're like, oh, it's it's this, and it's like it's almost that, and you can. It's like some of the responses are occurring, but not enough of them, or or maybe some of the first parts of them, like you're you're almost speaking. Or when I'm teaching class, I'll see people like their hand starts to come up a little bit, even though they haven't articulated the total response yet. And so some of what you might be seeing are just common response elements for a variety of different operants that are that are. That are being occasioned by this stimulus, but but the stimulus control has not been powerful enough to produce the totality of one of those offerings.
2: That that I can get on board with it. So so you're you're um you're not comfortable with calling it a response when it's subthreshold. Is that is that what I understand? Yeah. So my,
1: here, my, I mean, this is the, the, from a theory perspective. I don't I don't like the idea of saying that that um, in well. A response either happens or it doesn't. I've got an instance of it, or I don't have an instance of it. So I don't like the idea of taking something that I'm typically measuring a binary sense and saying that it's kind of happening. But if if you take that thing that you're saying a response, and you say, well, it's not a response. It's like a million responses in a row. Well, now now I can get on board with that. You know.
0: I, I just have to say I I think that was the misstep that has sort of framed our thinking is that we have a long history. Um, a la Skinner of 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 actually thinking about behavior as on or off binary mm-hmm. it's occurring or not and and this is this has led to a a um, technology that's been that's sort of founded on frequency and counting of, of binary things and that that the response is not something that's on or off that it occupies an entire continuous range but um, but very early on. Skinner did away with those notions for the operant and and sort of. Or it's not,
1: them. it isn't a response. It's a it's a collection of response elements
2: that we're seeing occur in sequence. I think we can um I think we can find a, a way of talking about it that will be mutually agreeable. Um I'm not committed to calling it a response. Um I, I would I would say there there are responses on uh uh the, uh the the threshold is something I think is is a real a real thing. Uh and uh I think there's a uh I think there's a sense in which we can talk about a response below that threshold because there is a constellation of discriminative stimuli they're calling for that response and they're calling for that particular response. Not uh, uh um, Bill's background is calling for the shining, not just Um, nice picture. So um, that response has a higher probability, if you will, or a higher strength, if you will, or something is special about that, about the shining as opposed to, um, you know, Chinatown. So um, I I can agree not to call it a response (laughs) because it hasn't been emitted but we still have to talk about the it right that is changing. So it's a, it's a I I think it's a matter of semantics. Now what we're going to call, what we're going to call it on different sides. Right. I my, I, I have habitually called it uh, a subthreshold response, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm not the boss. I don't get to say this is what we're going to call it. Uh, it. It's just what I've been, just what I've been doing, but. Uh, I understand that it could be misleading if, 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 if you have a strong preference for thinking of a response as something that can be measured. Well,
1: I, I think you could, I, I feel like we could experimentally generate this. Like I'm, I'm imagining a study in which um, if you take a look at your keyboard and you've got your, you've got like your QWERTY row and your ASDF row and your ZXC row, and imagine you you do an experiment and the, the ultimate requirement is that somebody somebody has to like um, tap two keys at the same time, or even like tap three keys at the same time. And you, you start with a stimulus that's discriminative for the availability of reinforcement for like B, N, and M plus some other ones, right? But you haven't shown the other ones yet. And if but imagine they have to like keep tapping. Maybe there's a little bar on the screen that they have to keep elevated. I, I would imagine even though we haven't shown them all the stimuli that they need to complete the totality of the response, once we show them the first stimuli, we might see the first leg of it or the first step of the. Mm-hmm. And now it's not the response anymore. then it's the, the first response in this cascade or sequence. So what well, I'm just spitballing, but I, I do think there are probably some ways to to get at this. and that 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 makes a lot of sense to me that you that we have cascades of, Responses and our functional unit it might just be much smaller
4: than we're used to speaking of this. Dave, I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but in your verbal behavior class, did we discuss an empirical example of subthreshold responding from maybe um, something that had to do with reflexes?
2: Um, I, I, um, I may have. Um, I don't remember if, if I did it in the Reb class, but, but I do talk about um, the, the reflex um, as an example, as an illustration, because we know a lot about the reflex. We don't know a hell of a lot about the shining, but we know a heck of a lot about the flexion reflex. Um, and uh, I, I can, can I share, can you allow me to share screens, Jason? Um, okay. Okay. I'm I'm getting there. Oh, by the way, we've we've gone over our hour. Um Yeah, let's let's do let's
1: do um Dave, you walk us through what you want to show us, then I think let's wrap for today. And I'm I'm inclined to I think we have some more to flesh out here. So I would be inclined to continue this conversation topic for next week and maybe add the
2: atomic report paper. Okay. Uh, can you can you see this? Yes. Okay, so um, the, um, the flexion reflex has a threshold, and that's the that vertical line in the middle of the screen. Um, the amplitude of the stimulus is the x-axis. So if you jab a frog in the leg, um, you have to jab pretty hard before, the, before the, the frog flexes its leg. If you jab harder, the frog flexes. If you jab less hard, the, the, the leg doesn't flex. So there's this threshold of stimulus intensity that determines, that that has to be exceeded before the response occurs. But uh, Adrian showed that the intensity of a sensory stimulus is coded by firing rate of neurons, not by the amplitude of the neurons, but the firing rate. So we put Adrian's work together with Sherrington's work and we see that Prior to the threshold of the, the reflex being emitted, the sensory stimuli are firing at a higher and higher and higher rate. And these particular sensory stimuli in Sherrington's preparation don't go anywhere except to the spinal cord, right. where they, they, there's, there's some interneurons and they go directly to the uh, flexor muscles. So, um, so this is a so-called reflex arc, where we can see the, the um, response strength, if you will, rising over the course of this, um, as the stimulus, amp- amplitude of the stimulus increases to the response threshold. And these particular sensory neurons have sort of surgically been imposed in such a way that they they imply a particular response, not just any old response. Right.
1: Um, so even though you don't see the leg move, there's
2: neuronal activity that is associated with the leg moving. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah. And uh, Sherrington also pointed out that you, the additivity of stimulus control, you take two weak stimuli mm-hmm. that by themselves, add them together, and bingo, you get the reflex. Mm-hmm. This, this notion of additivity of stimulus control, I think, is an extremely important one. Uh, because it it, it has uh, tells us what we need to know about multiple control uh, and how particular target behaviors are are um, are brought to strength because of this additivity and the whole notion of prompting uh, we, we prompt behavior um, on the assumption that it's already strong that is we're not prompting just any old behavior we're prompting a particular target response that must already be occasioned in part by the context uh, uh you know the, the the damn student won't won't admit the correct response because for, for whatever reason but the the question isn't completely ineffective it's the, the, the the student just needs a another little hint in order to get it over the threshold so yeah. the, of stimulus control um, it's all, uh, it all fits in with this notion of a response threshold with a, um, with a gradient of probability if you will or a gradient of strength uh, depending upon other ambient stimuli that is in the absence of any ambient stimuli everything would be at the floor given the profusion of ambient stimuli, a whole bunch of behavior has some probability and or supplementary stimuli, are going to differentially select yeah. some. And, and it can be the stupidest, feeblest little hints. Mm. You know, the person's last name starts with Q. Well, all of a sudden you're shouting, quail! It's quail! I knew it was quail.
1: Okay. That, I, think that... um, I was just going to say, Stephanie suggested hangman as a preparation to look at this. And I think that's a
3: yeah, I'll pop a letter on there, see what you get. Give another letter, see yeah, what
2: yeah, you yeah. get. Right, right, right. Or, or crossword puzzles is a good example.
3: Yeah. And I feel like um in verbal behavior or any class Jason teaches, there are oral quizzes. And I I can't tell you how many times I wanted to ask, oh, can you give me the first letter of that verbal operant or something? You know, some supplemental stimulation here.
2: Yeah, but that bastard, he never does, does he?
3: Good, it's good that he doesn't, but you are correct. Uh not ever. <laughs> What
4: were you going to say? I think that prompting example is so interesting. Um, And I had never really thought of it before in relation to this topic. But when we are physically guiding a response, like say we're trying to establish a, a card touch response and we're not getting any behavior with a point cue or a model or a gesture or anything like that, and then putting a hand on a child's elbow and bringing their hand to the card and then delivering a reinforcer tends to increase the likelihood of that response without the prompt and really what we've done is um, facilitate a muscle movement that is followed by reinforcement and then the response continues to occur and the the prompting piece of it goes away. So it's not like it's it's not like stimulus control where the prompt is now occasioning the response which produces reinforcement. It's the it's the elements of the response that you have made possible by the prompting. Yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Put a video yeah.
3: example, video modeling in there also for learners for whom that works, where you can just demonstrate the totality of that particular response topography. Would that mm-hmm. also be included here?
4: Yeah, but and 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 prompts are so idiosyncratic in their efficacy because of the whether or not those responses occur in the learner exactly to start with. Yeah.